0: From WNYC in New York, this is America. Are we ready? A Thursday night national call-in show for the first hundred days of the Biden presidency. Good evening, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer from WNYC.
1: And I'm Jamie Floyd, WNYC's legal analyst. Tonight, ready or not, we are in the middle of another Donald Trump impeachment trial. The Democrats have now concluded their opening arguments, so we will play a few excerpts, talk about the Senate in which they're taking place, and we will be taking your calls.
0: And listeners, here's our basic call-in question for this hour. Are you learning anything new from these proceedings that you didn't know before about the Capitol riots? Are they changing the way you think? Are these hearings changing the way you think of Trump, the Senate, or the state of American democracy? You're invited to weigh in. At 844-745-TALK, 844
1: If you voted for Donald Trump, do you think he did or did not provoke or incite the riot based on the evidence you've seen thus far? And if you didn't vote for Donald Trump, what do you hope that we'll get from this process of putting Trump and his claims center stage again, just when We finally voted him out of office. 844-745-TALK. That's 844-745-8255.
0: Yes. And what are you learning from this that you didn't know before? And if you feel like you already knew what happened in the insurrection and how guilty you think Trump is or isn't of inciting it, what are you watching or listening to see if you already have an opinion? 844-745-TALK. And with us for this hour is an expert on the Senate, in which the impeachment proceeding is taking place, of course. He is Adam Gentelson, who was once a top advisor to Democratic Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. Reid was Majority Leader for the first years of the Obama administration just before Mitch McConnell.
1: And Adam Gentleson has a book that came out just last month. Terrific title Kill Switch. The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. The timing is fantastic. Adam, thank you so much for being with us this evening, and welcome to America Are We Ready.
2: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: At the risk of uh, maybe causing our listeners to tune out because... Uh, Well, maybe they'll think there's no point to the whole thing, but let me ask you this question. As clear and convincing as Democratic impeachment managers may have been these past couple of days to some television viewers, are they just playing to a brick wall because Republicans in the Senate see their job as acquitting Donald Trump? And if the Democrats know that going in, Adam, what's the point of the whole thing?
2: Well, unfortunately, I I think that It's likely that they are playing to a brick wall, but I think that that still means that there is an enormous value in doing this and doing it in a compelling fashion as they are doing it. Um, Look, this is about history. This is about establishing a record for posterity and for future generations to see what happened, that this president committed a crime, um, but also to see that, one of the two major parties was simply unwilling to hear that evidence, uh, and unwilling to evaluate the evidence on the merits and come to what is pretty undeniably the correct conclusion that he should be convicted, um, and denied from running for office again. So I, I'm sort of of two minds about it because I, I I do think that there are, um, There's very little chance that Republicans, that 17 Republicans, enough to to actually convict him will come over and vote with Democrats on this one. Um, But I think there's enormous value in establishing the historical record and also making clear to everybody what we're dealing with here in terms of the modern Republican Party uh, and how um, obstructionist and how deeply loyal to Trump and how uh, impervious to facts it has become. And that that, there is value in, in demonstrating that before the American people.
0: So here's a clip from today in which House impeachment manager Joe Neguse of Colorado tries to lay the blame on Trump by asking the question, then playing a montage of Trump's words at the January 6th rally just before the mob marched to and broke into the Capitol. And what question? Well, the House impeachment managers didn't have to convince senators or the American people, that the Capitol riot was horrible and murderous and seditious against our country. Obviously, almost everyone believes that. They had to convince people that Donald Trump incited it without ever saying, go break into the Capitol, go try to kill Mike Pence or anything like that. So here's part of how Jonah Goose made that case.
3: Did he encourage the violence? Standing in that powder keg, did he light a match? Everyone knows the answer to that question. The hours of video you all have watched leave no doubt. Just remember what he said on January 6th.
4: All of us here today do not want to see our election victory stolen. There's never been anything like this. It's a pure theft in American history. Everybody knows it. Make no mistake, this election was stolen from you, from me, and from the country. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. We must stop the steal. We will not let them silence your voices. We're not going to let it happen. Not going to let it
0: happen. There it is. Sorry for jumping the gun in the middle of the clip. Uh, Fight for Trump. Fight for Trump. At the end of that, obviously very riled up. So, Jamie, Trump never says smash the doors or try to kill or hurt anyone or physically obstruct the vote to authorize the election. Not physically. But when he says with rage in his voice to make no mistake, the election was stolen from you and we will never concede because theft was involved. And there's the crowd chanting fight for Trump. Where's the line?
1: Well, you know, there's the uh, common sense definition of incitement, which uh, you can look up in any dictionary, you know, an action provoking unlawful behavior or urging someone to behave unlawfully. And then there's the constitutional notion of incitement. And and I'm sure we're going to hear tomorrow and, and we can toss it to Adam On this, but we're going to hear tomorrow from the Republicans when they make their case about constitutional guarantees of free speech and free press. But even the Supreme Court has said that they do not extend where any free speech is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action or is likely to incite or produce imminent lawless action. Uh, So even when wrapping oneself in the First Amendment, You cannot incite a riot. And certainly when one is an official, a lawmaker, or president of the United States, one has, I would think, a greater duty not to incite lawless action. Uh, But I would wonder what Adam uh, thinks we can expect tomorrow uh, when Republicans begin to make their case now that the Democrats uh, have, uh, I guess we can say, wrested their their case. It's a, a bit of a trial, is it not?
2: Yeah, I think you're right to expect a lot of um, leaning on the First Amendment, um, that they've sort of signaled that that is going to be uh, a key part of their defense. Um, they will also, uh, I think, lean on the argument that you cannot uh, try and convict a president who has left office. Um, this has been a, a point of contention, although the general consensus among legal scholars seems to be that you you can, um, but I think that they will make the case that you can't. Um, and then I think that you'll you'll just see them uh, uh, appeal to the idea that it's just time to move on um, and try to take some moral high ground here uh, and say, you know, let's Biden ran on unity. Let's bring the country together by, by moving on. I think that's a rather specious invocation of unity. Um, but I do think that's probably something that they will try to uh, claim as high ground. Um, is, it, the-
1: is it? Is it though, Adam? Shouldn't we just move on? Should we not just stop talking about, thinking about, worrying about, dwelling upon Donald Trump in the last four years and start to uh, move on and end all the distraction?
2: Well, I think there's a fine line between moving on and normalizing things that should not be normalized. And I think if you just let this go, um, you would be normalizing this level of behavior uh, from a president and from a party. And I think that that's not the right thing to do as lawmakers or as a country. Um, I don't think it's a massive uh, distraction or, or use of time to take a week to have this trial um, and establish this historical record. Uh, and I do think it's important to do. Um, if you just move on, you're basically saying that that if another president were to come and do this, um, they would not be met with any consequences. Trump may not be convicted in the end, but at least we will have gone through the process. He will have been impeached a second time. That stands for all of history. He'll be go down in history as the only president to be impeached twice. I think that's a significant uh, uh, consequence. Um, and the trial will have shown that you really can't ignore the massive amount of evidence that's been presented, and that you know a party was was willing to to let it go. And I think that's not going to look good um, in the in the scope of history. So I, I think it's important to get that on the record be- before we move on to to other things.
0: Let's take our first call. Here is Marshall in McAllen, Texas. Marshall, you're on America. Are we ready? Thanks so much for calling in.
5: Howdy, Mr. Lair. Howdy, Mr. Jentleson. And I have forgotten the name of the other person on y'all's show. Ms. Floyd,
0: Jamie Floyd.
5: Howdy, Ms. Floyd. So I come to the conversation with a rather unique perspective. I live along the border in the Rio Grande Valley which has been run by the democratic party since 1867. We've never had a Republican representative. Um, and I work in the Republican party, but I voted for Joe Biden. I also spent some time working in the the Georgia Senate runoff race. And I, I was classically trained in school. So I antiquity and Rome and Greece were pretty big in my book. Um, I don't think you can prove Trump directly accountable for criminal incitement, but I think you could find him accountable for political incitement. And I think in a historical lens, we do need to hold him accountable. Now, whether that means 17 Republicans will come over the line, I don't know. The Republican Party, even internally for my work, is split. It's split between moderates and Trump folks. It's split between uh, Tea Party folks and Trump folks. It's, it's and just, Marshall,
0: we're coming well, to, to a break that we have to take, but it sounds like you're okay with this failing to convict him because it still sets the story for history.
5: I'm not so sure if I'm okay with it failing, but I do think that the hard part is we had the first impeachment. There were some procedural scripts on both sides there, which I think has poisoned the well for the second one.
0: For the second one. And we'll continue in a minute. Stay with us.
1: It's America. Are we ready? The Thursday night call-in show for the first hundred days of the Biden presidency. I'm WMYC legal analyst Jamie Floyd with WMYC's Brian Lehrer and Adam Gentelson, former advisor to then- Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, now author of the book "Kill Switch: The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. Our topic tonight, America ready or not, we're impeaching Donald Trump again.
0: Yes, we are, Jamie. And our phones are open for you folks to say what you're learning from the impeachment trial so far, or if it's changing your mind about Trump or the Senate or the state of our democracy at 844-745-TALK, 844 You can also tweet at me, Brian Lehrer, Brian with an I, Lehrer, L-E-H-R-E-R, at Brian Lehrer, and we'll watch our Twitter go by for additional comments. Well, we started in McAllen, Texas. Let's go next to Kermit in Wyndham, Vermont. Kermit, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi.
4: Hi. I just, I am devastated. As a, a colored folk, I'm black. What I'm watching right now Is just more of this dancing around to masquerade the truth and that is white supremacism continues to control the conversation right now we are talking about this human being Donald Trump who is absolutely trash okay we all get it what does it mean to a person of color that they continue to dance around this did you know that one in more than four hundred Native Americans indigenous have died of COVID. And the Chiefs and the Buccaneers just played in the Super Bowl. And yet the media, you included, continue to run down the avenue waving flags about white supremacism. Why aren't we talking about what's happening to the indigenous people right now? Everybody. And Donald Trump called Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas. End of story. No one held him accountable. You didn't hold him accountable. And here we are wasting all this energy and time and money to talk about this horrible thing that just happened.
0: Do you think, Kermit, let me me ask you a follow-up question. Do you think that the Senate focusing on Donald Trump and his role in January 6th, which was certainly a white supremacist riot, among whatever other things it was, um, distracts from the work of dismantling white supremacy or contributes to it or neither.
4: I think it does a little bit of neither, but mostly because my attitude is that white supremacism is all we talk about. We don't have any energy or oxygen to talk about what's happening to the indigenous people in COVID, because of the failures of this administration and its white racist agenda, and every single person who continues to apologize for Donald Trump, they are who are impeaching. But we've already done it. Anybody with a, 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 a modicum of a conscience has already ridden off a Trumper in their own lives. It's just absurd. And right now. These people are suffering, and all we're talking about is the same old volleyball game that's taking all the energy away from the things that we need to focus on as a nation.
0: Kermit, thank you. And the first nation are
4: indigenous people.
0: Yes. That's what I've got to say. Kermit, thank you very much. Let's go next to Carol in Sister Bay, Wisconsin. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Carol.
6: Hi. Yes, I, wh- I mean, I first of all, I want to acknowledge the speaker, I mean, the person who just called in and um, mm-hmm. our need to really, really focus on the death and the carnage that we continue to perpetrate on our Native peoples. But what I was going to say was the argument is about, you know, whether you know, we want to take revenge on Donald Trump and how it's going to split us if we convict him. But what I would like to say is we need to look at what is the most loving thing to do for the democracy and for the people. But also, convicting Donald Trump would be the most loving thing to do for him because he has never been held accountable for his um, continuous lives and the power that he held in that office. Um, he's, he's he's had to pay money, but he's never been held accountable for what he does to people. And, and this would be the most loving thing for him to do, to have to actually face that it, there is a limit and that he has reached it. And he- this
0: is hilarious on one level, Karen. It's like, Carol, it's like parenting theory, right? If you have a child, an actual child, and you don't set limits, you probably raise that child's anxiety level uh, and set that template for that child more than anything else, more than make that child happy because they can do whatever they want. You- you're saying that might apply to Donald Trump at age 74?
6: Yes. And also, it would be a powerful witness for his son, Baron, because the whole thing just keeps getting recycled, that he can do anything he wants, and he inside himself um it would be a loving thing to have that boundary set.
0: Carol, thank you so much.
1: Brian. I want to return if we could with Adam to our previous caller. Uh, Kermit, uh, who made the point that, you know, nationwide, one in every 450 or so Native Americans has died of COVID since the start of the pandemic. That's, you know, basically a year in the last year, one in every 450 Native Americans has died of COVID. And we also know that Other communities of color have been hard hit, hardest hit, uh, including my own African-Americans by COVID, Latinx people. Uh, And so, Adam, I want to come back to you on on the question we we started to touch on um, in the last segment, which is the question of healing and moving forward. And and I hear what you're saying about making this mark on history, a twice impeached president, uh, how critical it is. To, to make a statement for history. We know who the previously impeached presidents are, and so uh, it is a historical marker. Certainly a twice-impeached president will be. But, uh, you know, having served in Washington, having worked in the Senate, uh, what, what do you think we need to do to move forward? I, I, that, that phrase that Kermit used, the volleyball of history, back and forth mm-hmm. and back and forth, but really back and forth between people who have the power while those who are disempowered remain disempowered uh, for decades, indeed centuries?
2: I think that's a great question. And I think it's one that should be at the forefront of lawmakers' minds as they move forward with how to deal with the pandemic and, frankly, every issue um, in terms of, you know, addressing structural racism and how it uh, works its way into uh, economic policy, housing policy, education policy. Um, you know, it's, it's very present because it's, it's been there as these policies have developed over decades and it, it will take a lot of time and intentionality in the application of uh, new solutions to deconstruct it. Um, but I think that one of the, one of the things that I write about in the book is that the Senate itself, uh, has been shaped deeply by structural racism, and part of the reason that it's been so hard to pass policies through the Senate recently, on on every issue, is because of uh, obstructionist tactics um, and things like the filibuster that have developed out of a desire, primarily by white supremacist, uh, primarily Southern segregationist senators, over the course of centuries, um, who developed these tools to give essentially a minority of conservatives veto power over anything the federal government does. So not to bring this back to my uh, you know, preferred uh, subject area here, but I think that what, the only way that we're going to be able to pass effective policies that deal with the kind of issues that you're talking about is to restore a level of majority rule to our institutions. As I explained in the book, this was the way it was supposed to be. We've come to accept a Senate uh, that requires 60 votes, that gives the party that's out of power a veto power over everything that happens as normal, but it's mm-hmm. not... Was not supposed to be this way. It was not the way it was intended. Uh, and if we want to restore a level of functionality, of basic competence, um, and ability to pass solutions that will deconstruct uh, the deep structural racism that affects many of our institutions and many of our federal policies, um, we have to have a functioning federal government again. That's sort of a threshold condition uh, that we do not currently have and that we need to restore.
0: And the filibuster is just the tip of the iceberg of what's wrong with the Senate, right? As it happens, smaller population states, and they get to senators just like California or Texas or Florida or New York, smaller population states tend to be more rural and more white. So in a country where whites have always reigned supreme officially and unofficially, the Senate today gives extra helpings of power to the already most powerful. But That's I want absolute. to move on from that yep. to Debbie in Sussex County, New Jersey. Debbie, you're on America. Are we ready? Hello.
7: Hi. Um, I'm really passionate about wanting Trump to be convicted for so many reasons. And one of the things that I learned today was that, um, as we know, most of the Republicans in the Senate are not going to vote to convict him because they're worried about their status or the repercussions that they do from Trump and his base. But I found out that they could uh, vote by secret ballot and that the Democrats are empowered to um, propose that. Uh, and they can, and that's partly because of um, our new vice president being the head of the Senate. And they only need 20 uh, Republicans to agree to a secret ballot. So if any of them has any vestige of a conscience left, especially after three days of watching these incredibly emotionally disturbing uh, you know, the footage of the attack on the Capitol, then they might very well consent to do it by secret ballot. Now, the pundit who wrote this article also expressed concern that because he doesn't think a secret ballot could remain secret very long because of pressure by the media and by, mm. you know, politicians in general to find mm-hmm. out who voted what. But I think that's a small risk compared to the great benefit of actually having, you know, Trump convicted. You know, if this were a Frank Copper movie, we'd have Jimmy Stewart, you know, coming <laughs> to save the day. But right. until until that mm. happens, you know, we need to do everything in our power. And what I'd like to know from your guest or somebody who might know is how can we as a people go about demanding or, or you know, getting the Democrats to
2: propose a secret ballot because they it's have a, every right to do so?
0: It's a great question for an expert on the Senate such as Adam Gentleson. Adam. Mm-hmm.
2: Sure, yeah. So uh, I agree with, with everything you said. I think a secret ballot would probably, um, I don't want to speculate, but I think it would be at least more likely to lead to conviction. You saw in the House a recent... Uh, similar example where uh, Liz Cheney, who had been uh, a Trump critic, was supported by most of the Republican caucus because uh, the vote to support her was held on a secret ballot. Um, Republicans seem much more likely to break with Trump when it's done in secret. Um, The one problem is that it, it is actually 80 senators who are required to move the Senate to a closed session. And which is what you would have to do to then hold a secret ballot. Um, so it's 20 it's 20 senators who can block that secret ballot from happening or 21 senators who can block that that ballot from happening. So you would have to have so you have 30 you have 50 Democrats. so You would have to have 30 Republicans who would join. Um, but to your, to your question of how to get Democrats to demand it, um, I think, you know, writing and calling, uh, immediately, something I can say as someone who used to work in the Senate is that phone calls really do work. Senators really do pay attention to what issues people are asking for when they take the time to call into their offices. Um, people don't often take the time to make calls. And so when they do, they notice. Um, so there's not a lot of time here because this trial, uh, is Republicans are going to Offer their case tomorrow. I'm I'm here seeing reports that they may only take three or four hours to make their case. Um, so this whole thing could wrap up uh, over the weekend. Um, so you could you could make those calls, but I think you would have to do it quickly. Um, but then you still have the problem that you would still need, uh, even if Democrats proposed it, you would still need 30 Republicans to come over to get to that 80 senators required to go into a closed session uh, and hold a secret ballot.
1: I worked in Washington and it was always people like you that kept us on our toes. You got to know the rules. You really got to know the rules. Uh, let's go to Steve in Pittsburgh. Steve, uh, welcome to America. Are you ready? What do you got?
8: Uh, thank you for ha- taking my call. I appreciate it. Are, are we uh,
1: ready, Steve? What do you think?
8: Uh, <laughs> uh, ready for what might also be another question.
1: <laughs> However,
8: uh, one thing i'd like to talk about is what i the original question you've asked which is the what i've learned from the proceedings so far and one thing i've learned is how spineless it seems republicans can be in the face of overwhelming evidence of what i would say is a massive contextual case for the not just, I'm not even saying necessarily the impeachment of President Trump, I'm saying for the clear and present danger he has been in the Oval Office, but particularly in the last three, and three to four months. And so I think it what, what, what strikes me is that it, it doesn't pair well with the Republicans clinging to their philosophy of individual accountability and responsibility, which is to say that I think that's what gets in the way of their ability to see that collective action is real.
0: Mm -hmm. Steve, thank you so much for that. And to that point, Adam Gentleson, can I get your take on Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader, saying this last month?
9: The last time the Senate convened, we had just reclaimed the Capitol from violent criminals who tried to stop Congress from doing our duty. The mob was fed lies. They were provoked by the president and other powerful people.
0: So, Adam, if he thinks Trump is guilty of provoking the riot, should we assume he's going to vote to convict? Because that's the charge, isn't it?
2: I think you should always assume that Mitch McConnell is going to do what is best for Mitch McConnell's survival and uh, hold on power. And also what he believes is best for the political interests of his Republican conference, uh, who he wants to win reelection in the 2022 midterms. And in this case, I think that he will probably decide that the best thing for him for political survival is to vote to defend the president. I think this has been indicated by the two votes, he, has, the two votes he has already cast um, first to dismiss the trial uh, and then to declare the trial unconstitutional. Both of those votes failed, but he voted you know, to dismiss the trial and to declare it un- unconstitutional. So I think that is a strong signal that he's going to vote to to defend the president. Um, look, at the end of the day, this this comes down to a political calculation for Republicans. I'm not saying that this is the right thing, um, but I think that this is what they're thinking, which is that tr- this is still Trump's party and Trump still controls uh, the vast majority of Republican voters, um, the 35 to 45 percent of their base that in any individual election Republican senators need to get elected and get reelected, and to survive and avoid primary challenges from the right. And so I think that's ultimately going to be what, what carries the day and determines the way that they're going to vote. And that leads them to the decision to vote to defend the president.
0: This is America Are We Ready. We'll continue in a minute with a clip of House Manager Jonah Goose talking about what might be an incredibly damning piece of new evidence that emerged just last night. Stay with us.
1: It's America, Are We Ready, the Thursday night call-in show for the first hundred days of the Biden presidency. I'm WNYC legal analyst Jamie Floyd here with WNYC's Brian Lehrer. We're so pleased to be joined by Adam Gentelson, former advisor to then Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. He's now the author of a new book called Kill Switch: The Rise of the Modern Senate and the crippling of American democracy. Our topic tonight, America Ready or Not, We're Impeaching Donald Trump Again.
0: Again, and our phones are open for you to say what you're learning from the impeachment trial so far, or if it's changing your mind about Trump or the Senate or the state of our democracy at 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255.
1: And we're ready to go right to your calls. Let's take one from Nelson in Cincinnati.
0: Hey, Nelson. Hello. Nelson, are we ready? Um,
9: Yes, I am ready.
1: (laughs) All right, go for it.
9: And what? And I would like to say that after 60 years in and out of the uh, broadcast business, um, that since Ronald Reagan abolished the Fairness Doctrine, there are thousands of right-wing extremist talk shows all over the radio dial all over America right now, spewing exactly what Donald Trump has been doing for the last four years, and these are all not legal. When when Reagan abolished the fairness doctrine, of course they went nuts, and this has been this has gone on without any mention from anybody in in, in the media. Mm-hmm. And you should also mention the pressure you're under, which all broadcasters have been under, to make sure you that, that you know that everybody knows that news is liberal. So you have to emphasize and be very, and scrutinize anything that would be deemed liberal. while. Um,
0: politics- I, I understand the, the analysis you're, you're trying to make of the media. Mm-hmm. Nelson, and you also told our screener, I think that you wanted to say something about never having seen the public, never having seen the full footage of the riot. Do you want to make that point?
9: Oh, yes, um, when Trump made that speech he he put that phrase in there amid uh, a, a very um, extremist um, line of reasoning there. Um, And he put that phrase in and and the rest of the language was um, actually uh, um, (laughs) uh, the rest of the language that he used was was more real, uh, more applicable to what happened right there. And 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 the media, of course, has taken that phrase out that he used that and repeated that Um, and it. It should be acknowledged, and I think all of you should acknowledge, what kind of pressure you are under to not support a- anything that would appear liberal.
0: I think we are under pressure to report the truth, uh, and we're going to leave that there for another day about the media. Uh, but we can only hope that the listeners judge us as being committed to reporting the truth. Yeah. From truth is truth, to-
1: Brian. Truth is truth.
0: Truth is truth, as <laughs> House manager, um, uh, one of the House managers said, I think, in yeah. the uh, proceedings yesterday. But kind of following up on Nelson and kind of the full story of what happened still emerging about January 6th. Here, here's another clip of House impeachment manager Jonah Goose arguing another part of the case against Trump with the fact that even if he didn't cause the violence to begin with, even if one accepts that, once he was back at the White House, knowing it was taking place and taking place on his behalf, he egged it on. There seems to be a reference both to Trump not demanding the rioters to cease and desist right away, but also new evidence last night that Trump may have tweeted an attack on Mike Pence after he learned that Pence was in danger in a phone call with Alabama Republican Senator Tommy Tuberville. As Politico reports it, the existence of the phone call had been previously reported, but the detail that Tuberville informed Trump his vice president was in danger is a new and potentially significant development for House prosecutors seeking Trump's conviction. It occurred just around the time that Trump sent a tweet attacking Pence for not having, quote, the courage to unilaterally stop Joe Biden's victory. Um, And so that part of the description was from New York Magazine, though it's still unclear if the call happened just before or just after Trump's tweet. But Congressman DeGoose argues around that possible new fact that Trump may have known that Pence's vice president was in trouble before he tweeted an attack on Pence, Negus used that in his closing remark today.
3: The fact that he actually further inflamed the mob, further inflamed that mob, attacking his vice president while assassins were pursuing him in this capital, more than requires conviction and disqualification. We humbly, humbly ask you to convict President Trump, for the crime for which he is overwhelmingly guilty of. Because if you don't, if we pretend this didn't happen, or worse, if we let it go unanswered, who's to say it won't happen again?
0: And except for some closing housekeeping by Jamie Raskin. That was the end of the two days of Democrats making their opening arguments. So, Adam Gentleson, for you as a Senate watcher, are you aware of that Senator Tommy Tuberville, Republican from Alabama, story about talking on the phone with Trump possibly before and telling him that Pence was being escorted out of the Senate chamber because he was physically in in danger? before Trump tweeted his attack on Pence?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm aware of the story. Um, you know, I'm also aware that uh, there seems to be sort of confirmation of the story from Senator Mike Lee of Utah, who uh, contemporaneously told uh, an outlet called the Deseret News, a, a local uh, outlet in Utah, that this had happened. Uh, the, the story is that Trump actually called Mike Lee's phone, intending to call uh, Tuberville and said, you know, hi is this tommy and mike lee said oh you must be trying to call senator tuberville and pass the phone over to him um so you you, in in that uh interaction with mike lee you sort of have uh, what seems to be corroboration uh mike lee got very upset yesterday and tried to say that this hadn't happened um but his statement yesterday that it didn't happen would conflict with his decision to officially confirm the event at the time um To The outlet that reported it Um, he his office participated in that story and confirmed it on the record at the time So there seems to be some discrepancy there Um, Listen, I'm I'm not a lawyer. I don't want to speculate here But but senator Lee's uh, desire to sort of throw some uh, kick up some dust here Would sort of suggest how dangerous Republicans Think this fact could be for the case against Trump Um, if it is true that Trump uh, called Senator Tuberville and was aware that Vice President Pence was in danger before he tweeted a statement that seemed to incite further violence against Pence, that would be a pretty damning fact. Uh, and if I were Mike Lee, if I were interested in trying to defend the president, I would certainly try to uh, muddy the waters there as much as possible. Um, but but the exact sequence and what came in, in what order is not exactly known uh, and so we, we don't know that fact yet, um, but it certainly would be damning uh, if the call happened before the tweet from Trump uh, sort of inciting further attacks against Pence.
1: And, and the allegation being that he was endeavoring to stop the transition of power. Uh, so it underscores that allegation on the part of Democrats prosecuting uh, this impeachment. Um, Let's take uh, another call, uh, Jason. Tell me again where we're going. Jason is our, Jason is our engineer. Robert in Columbus, Georgia. Let's go to Georgia, critically important state at this time and always in our union. Robert, what do you got?
10: Well, thank you. I'm glad Georgia could help the the, the truth <laughs> reveal itself. But uh, that's what I want to discuss is the procedural argument that the republicans are going to use to uh uh, give the public and the senate the notion that it's illegally uh implementing the impeachment and uh i'm glad i forgot which uh, democrat presented it today but he he clearly stated that the congress has every right to implement this impeachment and that they're doing it according to constitutional law But, you know, I was just arguing with a pro-Trumper today, and they're already believing that it's illegal because he's out of office. And I just don't, I I worry that the Democrats are going to give the Republicans some wiggle worm, uh, wiggle uh, space, you know, because uh, unless they ask, uh, you know, don't they have an answer, a question and answer uh, time during this? Okay. I Robert, hope that, they
0: ask. Go ahead. You hope they ask.
10: I'm sorry. I just hope they ask uh, on the, the radio to the public. They ask a Republican senator, hopefully Lindsey Graham or McConnell, that, uh, that that they understand that it is a totally legal procedure that mm-hmm. the Democrats have used to bring forth this
0: impeachment. Robert, I've got gotcha. you. Jamie, for you as a legal analyst, um, do you know how that question and answer part works? It's not that uh, the House managers get to ask some of the senators who are sitting as jurors, like Lindsey Graham, who the caller mentions, uh, questions about them. It's It's all the senators get to ask the House impeachment managers and the Trump lawyers. Isn't that it?
1: That's right. And really, this is a question for Adam. This is more of a political process than it is a legal trial. Uh, and whether we get to Q&A uh, remains to be seen. They they don't, as I understand it, Adam, we may or may not get to that part of the proceedings. Uh, it's not uh, required in an impeachment uh, trial. We saw the Q&A the last We just had an, we just went, we've been to this movie recently. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we should all remember how it went. And we did have uh, the Q&A, and you're correct, Brian. It was the senators asking the impeachment managers questions. But we don't. I don't think they're required to do that. It's an option. Am I not right about that, Adam?
2: That's, that's correct. Um, you know, the Senate gets to sort of decide how to do things however it wants to do them. <laughs> it's like holding a right, trial right. in a court with the court deciding how it wants to do the trial as it goes along. Um, that's just the Senate's prerogative and, you know, the Supreme court and other courts have, have affirmed that it does have that prerogative to sort of make it up itself as it goes along. Um, and you're also right that if there was question and answer time, it would be one sided from senators asking questions of the house impeachment managers Mm -hmm. and not the reverse. So Democrats probably would not have an opportunity to ask Republicans those questions directly. The one thing I would say to the caller is that there, there is a clear precedent on this, um, this hasn't happened frequently, um, but in 1876, the Senate did hold an impeachment trial, uh, not of a president, but of a cabinet official, William Belknap, who was the Secretary of War at the time. Um, and it was, you know, established then that this was an okay thing to do, uh, and that is the precedent that folks have leaned on this time to to affirm that it is constitutional, it is legal, um, and that that doesn't seem to be very much in question. I agree that it would be good to affirm that publicly and to hammer at home. Um, but uh, the vote to declare it unconstitutional failed. Um, so the Senate reaffirmed that this is constitutional by by casting that vote in the affirmative. Um, so there doesn't seem to be a lot of question about that. But as a, as a political messaging point, uh, it probably would be a good idea to continue um, making yeah, that clear to the public. Republicans
0: who want to vote no may fall back on it, uh, avoiding having to actually pass judgment on Donald Trump's behavior. Let me get one more caller in here, and then I want to ask each of the two of you a quick closing question. Victoria in Warwick, Rhode Island. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Victoria. We've got about a minute for you.
7: Hi, how are you? I just want to say that it's very clear to see that our freedom will go out the window in so many words if the Republicans don't stand up. And they are standing by Trump for money and power. And that is not what our country is made of. I mean, it has been uh, the style, let's say, a lot of times. But the Republicans owe us. They owe us the freedom that we deserve. And if this goes on, I dread what the future can hold.
0: Victoria, thank you very much. So, Adam Gentleson, you know who we haven't talked about tonight in this series for the first 100 days of the Biden presidency? Joe Biden. Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think he thinks about this or how it might be good or bad or irrelevant to his ability to get his policy agenda enacted?
2: Well, I think that he is probably ready for this trial to come to a conclusion i i he's given every indication that he supports holding it um but i think that he has a lot of big challenges that he wants to get moving on including the pandemic and it's very hard to move action forward on those things uh while this is happening so um i think he would support a sort of quick end to this um especially if there isn't much indication that Republicans are going to move. The one thing I would say is that I I think this has sort of been a clarifying moment for him as he determines his strategy on every other issue besides impeachment from COVID to infrastructure to uh, climate change to civil rights, which is that this party, uh, the party that he would have to compromise with if he's going to get these things done, is really being driven by some deep structural incentives um, that may be beyond the reach of reason and facts. And I think that will help shape how he approaches his legislative strategy going forward, because he essentially has two choices, either to try to work with Republicans or pursue methods like reconciliation or reforming Senate rules and eliminating the filibuster that would allow Democrats to get things done and deliver the results that he promised on their own if Republicans are going to continue to block them. Jamie, same question.
1: Well, I um, I know Joe Biden a little bit, as I'm sure Adam does, from our time in Washington. I I know he's a man who believes that power should be exercised for a purpose, not for its own sake, and we've really been to hell and back as a country. Uh, and so I would simply ask uh, that you know, if if Republican lawmakers, uh, you know, if not our Republican lawmakers, then at least our fellow Republican citizens. Please do some serious soul searching uh, over these next few days and certainly weeks and months, because uh, we are at this moment searching for the soul of our country. And that's, uh, that's truly the moment we find ourselves in.
0: And that's a good way to end. Adam Gentleson, author of Kill Switch: The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy. Thank you very, very much. Thanks for having me. And Jamie, always great to partner with you. Talk tomorrow, Brian. And that's America, Are We Ready? for this week. We're here every Thursday night for the first 100 days of the Biden presidency. Thanks to Adam Gentelson and Jamie Floyd once more. We'll be back next Thursday night to see how Joe Biden is trying to influence the economy. Meanwhile, you can listen to my podcast if you're interested. It's called Brian Lehrer, our daily politics podcast. Or just join me back here next Thursday night for America, Are We Ready?